0: As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy God, Scripture tells us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. May this enduring word open our hearts, our minds, our souls to receive what you have to say to us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 and 21 and 22. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay." When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves, and he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat and go to your home. And he stood up. And immediately took the mat and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And verses 21 and 22, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and so are the skins, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's typical in the Gospel of Mark that the author wastes no time getting to the point In Mark's first chapter alone, we speed through Jesus' baptism and temptation, the beginning of his ministry, the call of the first disciples, two healings, an exorcism, a preaching tour throughout Galilee. It's enough to take your breath away. So it's kind of a relief here at the beginning of chapter 2 when Mark tells us that Jesus returns home to Capernaum. But he doesn't get much of a break. The people in his hometown are so eager to get to him that they immediately fill up his house, so much so that when four people arrive carrying a paralyzed man in need of healing, the crowd simply pack in tighter, blocking the entrances to the house, preventing them from getting the paralyzed man to Jesus. Not to be deterred, they come up with a creative and unexpected solution— They climb to the roof of the house and somehow get the paralyzed man up there, cut a hole in the mud and straw, and carefully lower the man down to Jesus right in the center of his own home. So at this point in the story, it's pretty obvious what's going to happen next, right? Jesus is going to heal the man. What else could he do after the hard work to get him before Jesus? But the author of Mark's gospel has already told stories of healing. And he's ready to raise the stakes in Jesus' ministry. Chapter 2 begins a series of so-called controversy stories in Mark. And by the end of this chapter and the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus' words and actions will have stirred up so much controversy that the religious leaders are already cooking up a plan to destroy him. And it starts with this story. Because here in his own home, face to face with a man who so longed for healing that his friends cut open the roof to get him to Jesus, Jesus doesn't heal him. At least not at first. First, he forgives his sin. On a warm summer night in Washington, D.C., eight friends had gathered around a backyard table for dinner, toasting, family, and friendship, having a good time. But around 10 p.m., something happened that changed all of that. As if in slow motion, the barrel of a gun emerged between two people, a man named Michael and his wife, The hand holding the gun belonged to a man, medium height, in clean, high-end sweats. He raised the gun and held it first to the head of a woman named Christina and then to the head of Michael's wife. Then he said, give me your money. He kept repeating this, give me your money, give me your money or I'm going to start shooting. The problem was no one at the party had any cash So they started talking, grasping for some way to dissuade the man from violence. They started out trying to guilt him. What would your mother say if she could see you here? But the man said, I don't have a mother. Michael remembers thinking at this point that this was going to end very badly. But then Christine spoke up. You know, she said, We're just here celebrating, enjoying a beautiful evening. Why don't you join us and have a glass of wine? Suddenly, the man's face changed. He accepted the glass of wine, took a sip, and said, Oh, that's really good wine. He ate a piece of cheese. He put the gun down. And after a few moments, he looked around and said, I think I've come to the wrong place. Everyone there nodded and said, Hey, we understand it happens all the time. (laughs) For a moment, there was silence, just the sound of the insects chirping. Then the man said, The last thing any of them expected, can I get a hug? One person hugged him, then another, and then he said, "'Can we have a group hug?' So everyone got up and formed a circle around the man and gave him a hug, and after apologizing for interrupting their party, he turned and walked away, still holding the glass of wine. Later that evening, after everyone had calmed down, they found the glass placed on the sidewalk by the alley Not thrown down or carelessly discarded, but neatly placed. Why would Jesus look at a paralyzed man who has just been lowered into his house through a hole in the roof and offer him not physical healing, but forgiveness, It is as strange and unexpected as offering a glass of wine to someone holding a gun to your wife's head. Who does Jesus think he is forgiving sins? This is what the religious leaders object to because surely the power and authority to declare someone forgiven belongs to God alone. And the assumption that everyone there would have made about this paralyzed man is that he had done something along the way to deserve his affliction. The religious leaders might have accepted Jesus' ability to heal the man physically, but for Jesus to suggest he could heal him spiritually, well, that was going too far but Jesus makes it clear in several other settings that he thoroughly rejects the belief that physical or mental illness is caused by a person's sin. So why does he start by forgiving the paralytic? Could it be that Jesus knew that before the man picked up his mat and walked out of the house into a whole new future, he first needed to know once and for all he was not only healed on the outside but on the inside as well that all the dirty looks he had been given or all the times people had looked right through him as if he wasn't there all the names he had been called all the assumptions people had made that he was somehow less than all the able-bodied people around him that all the shame and guilt he had carried could finally be set aside, so that he could walk out of that house and start anew. In order to truly offer the man a new beginning, Jesus knows he needs to be healed from the inside out. All of us, day to day, moment to moment, struggle to live out our calling as Christ's disciples which is, as Richard Rohr puts it, to see Christ in everything and in everyone. We proclaim God's unconditional love and the power of forgiveness, and yet each day our fear and hardness of heart and unconscious bias gets in the way of even our best intentions— by recognizing that the paralytic's needs go far beyond his outer disability, Jesus actually sees him for who he is. A human being, like all human beings, in desperate need of God's acceptance and love, a person longing to know that he's been created good by a loving God. Jesus knows that healing the body without healing the soul will be as effective as putting a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old coat or new wine in old wineskins. It won't work. This fall, we've been exploring what the Israelites' return from exile teaches us about our attempts to go back to the future after navigating the challenges of a global pandemic— Today and in the weeks to come, we're shifting our attention to what Jesus teaches about the transition from the old to the new. Since his life and ministry, his death and resurrection ushered in a whole new way of understanding God. Again and again in his ministry, Jesus challenges the notion that we discover God only in the context of institutional religion with all its rules and regulations— This is what gets Jesus in trouble in this story. His claim that the human need for wholeness, for acceptance, for mercy, for healing from the inside out, is much more fundamental to God's will for humanity than maintaining our definitions of decency and order, of who's in and who's out, of who deserves our admiration and who deserves our contempt it's a difficult lesson for every generation to learn because it requires us to let go of long-held and often unquestioned assumptions and beliefs. But just like the paralytic who could not be fully healed physically without first receiving the spiritual healing Jesus offers, we too must be healed of the wounds of our past before we can embrace the opportunities of our future. Maya Angelou was once asked the question, Dr. Angelou, is racism more of a problem today or less? Are you more aware of it on the East Coast or the West Coast? She responded by telling this story. A decade earlier, Angelou visited San Francisco to speak about African art, and she received a call from a stranger who said he had a collection of African statues he thought she could use. She visited with him, saw the art, and formed a friendship with the man and his wife. Years later, she called him and said, It's Maya Angelou, I'm coming back to town, and I wondered if you wanted to have dinner. On the phone, they caught up and talked about what they'd been doing the last couple of years. He had been in Europe, working with the American troops that were stationed there. How did it go? she asked. Well, the black troops have a particularly hard time because there aren't many blacks around, he said. But our boys also, she interrupted him, what did you say? Well, the black troops have a particularly difficult time for various reasons, but our boys also, what did you say? A third time they went through it, and all of a sudden he heard his own words and exclaimed, this is the most awful thing I've ever said. I can't continue the conversation. I have to hang up to have said such a thing to you, Maya Angelou, the black boys our boys. And she said, no, this is why we must talk, because that's what racial prejudice is. Beneath the superficial liberal utterance, there is the deep, ingrained sense of black boys and our boys. They continued the conversation and agreed to meet But as her trip got closer, she tried a number of times to get a hold of him, and her messages went unanswered. Eventually, she gave up. And this story she told was the answer to that question, is racism more of a problem today or less? She became deeply emotional in telling it and ended the Q&A. The next day at the conference, she returned to the podium and said, I'm sure you noticed I was moved by what I told you yesterday. But a remarkable thing happened as I was leaving the hall. A man in the audience stood up and said, here I am. It was the man she had been talking about. And as she said this, the man himself rose up in the audience, a small, white, Episcopal clergyman. He walked up to the platform and threw his arms around Maya Angelou and she around him. They embraced one another and they wept. Every single one of us needs the healing Jesus offers inside and out. And so we must do whatever it takes to get ourselves to Jesus, which is to say, to get ourselves to a place where we can clearly see the sin, both individual and collective, that is fostering such division among God's children. Because until we deal with the old wounds, we cannot be adequately healed to begin the new life Jesus offers. At different times, we each play all of the roles in today's story. We are the ones who rush to Jesus' house to hear him speak the word, but who then fail to step aside when other people, strangers who might look different from us, show up longing to be healed. We are those who can see someone who needs help and who will be creative and diligent in getting them before Jesus. And sometimes we are the one who needs to be carried, perhaps even lowered down, until we find ourselves at Jesus' feet where we might just discover that what we thought we needed to be healed from wasn't really what was wrong at all. Fortunately, Jesus has eyes to see what is in us that most needs to be healed, and however We get to him. He is always, always waiting and willing to say the words we need to hear, the words that make all things new. My beloved child, you are forgiven. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. Stand up, take your mat, and go. Amen.